Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Keep that in. <laughs> Hello, my name is Dave Hanready, and there will be no encore. Welcome to episode 283 of the No Encore Music Podcast, coming at you live and direct post-vaccination. It's me, Craig Fitzpatrick, meanwhile, is unvaccinated, I believe, in leak slip. Yeah, I am. I've got the um, nonchalant repose of a man who has not had a, a foreign body inside his own <laughs> in recent <laughs> memory. <laughs> Unlike <laughs> you, who's had your epidermis punctured mere moments ago mere moments ago yeah let's go live uh, to dave's and uh how are you feeling <laughs> um well it's strange the zoom call has remarkable reception i mean i don't know if that's related or not but i think um, <laughs> hey. i i feel good i yes uh, in case you're wondering listener i did in fact flirt terribly with the nice nurse lady who gave me the job and you know you're gonna need if- to go into details on that if, if so, you're bringing it up she was very nice and you know there was kind of i, I felt that there nurse. was something <laughs> i felt there was like something there there was some kind of chemistry you know i mean i'm sure it's probably a revolutionary thing for or a just guy the to antibodies dave awkwardly flirt with a nurse yeah. i'm sure it doesn't happen very often for her so um no she was just like she was doing the, the classic distraction maneuver of you know uh, i i mentioned that it was it was out in the helix in dcu and i mentioned oh, i went to college here and she was like, oh, what did you study? And I said, journalism. And then she was like, oh, do you do that now? And I said, yeah, yeah, freelance. And I was like, it's a glamorous way of saying, you know, unemployed most of the time and not much. And in my head, I was like, Dave, Sly dog. <laughs> <laughs> you really brought the A-list material. It's <laughs> just <laughs> terrible stuff. And I was just like, all right. So, um, uh, yeah. And then she was like, oh, in four weeks time, it'll actually be a different location because DCU need this back. So... All I'm saying is, if, if I go to wherever it's going to be four weeks from now, and she's there, well then, i got to make a move, right? You know, you got to do something with it. So. Yeah, I don't know. Might be a lawsuit waiting to happen. <laughs> I know you're Adam counting is, on your, like... <laughs> Adam, 
Adam is shaking his head. Um, I will say... I know you're thinking of it as being, like, your romantic, like, World War II world in crisis yeah. story of, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're some injured soldier in the middle of the crisis being <laughs> attended to, but, yeah. It was V-Day for it me is. today. I, I will say this, right? Obviously, um, I, I'm sure I'll never see this person again, but I will say, right, if she's the kind of unprofessional person who's, like, you know, who's looked me up after this, you know, and she's listened to this very show... Oh, my God. We're not going to see a tweet tomorrow of like, if you happen to be the pretty nurse in the Helix. <laughs> so anyway. You got your um, shot, and now you're shooting your shot. Fair yeah, that's, that's, how, that's how it works. No side effects to speak of so far, apart from completely uh, over-the-top confidence that I appear to have <laughs> sprouted. This is a music podcast. It's called No Encore. Welcome to the show. Of course, as noted last week, we are no longer on the Heads of Podcast Network. Uh, we received very, very emotional follow-up correspondence from the aforementioned Alan Bennett and Paddy O'Leary, which just made us feel uh, very empty and sad. But they're great people, great friends, and yes. I'd like to reiterate once again a thank you to everyone at the Headstuff Podcast Network for putting up with us for so long. And uh, to you, listener, and to those as well who signed up this week to our Patreon, patreon.com slash noencore. Your support is absolutely valuable and incredibly, incredibly loved and appreciated by myself and Craig. Uh, we're going to record a new episode of No Ox Chord just for you this weekend. And so it's patreon.com slash noencore if you want to help support the little independent podcast that could. And, you know, I mean, well, I'm trying to tie this into the whole nurse thing. Help me out, Craig. What are you trying to tie into the nurse thing? <laughs> Giving us don't, money? <laughs> no, I, don't, I don't know Much like that nurse, we uh, provide a vital, essential service. <laughs> I didn't I didn't tip her or anything. That would have been weird. You know, it wasn't like it wasn't like getting a haircut. I got a nice haircut though. See? It looks good, doesn't it? You're yeah, you're top of the world. Take that Van Morrison. Went to a musical <laughs> today. Went, up, ready to go. Went to, went to see In the Heights, which we'll be discussing on No Popcorn soon. There's new No Popcorn out now, by the way. No Popcorn The Doors with Craig Fitzpatrick. Did you enjoy the episode? Yeah, it was tremendous. Um, I'm not sure I could say the same for watching the film, although it was, you know, it was an event. I'm glad I did. And yeah, it was, it, it, I don't know. It was cathartic. Right there. Uh, yeah, I'm, bit, I'm thinking back to troubles. the recording of the episode. I'm just like, <laughs> when I came armed with my fucking sheets and sheets of notes marked Jimbo. And uh, yeah, no, it was cathartic to uh, have a full episode to unload. Um, yeah, it was great. Good episode is out now. Uh, what's on this episode, Craig? We are not doing an album <laughs> because <laughs> Lana Del Rey, I don't know, had too much of a good time on the 4th of July. And yeah, we're going to do Blue Bannisters if it dropped. Uh, it did not materialise. It was big kind of like, um, you know, making promises that you're not going to keep when you're out and about energy, wasn't it? It was like, yeah, yeah, like you're out at four in the morning. It's like, yeah, let's go on a hike tomorrow. And then she released a statement just being like, yeah, the album will come out later. So I don't know if we'll ever see it, to be quite honest. But we're plowing ahead and we're doing our top five sophomore albums for all you, I guess, American listeners out there. Second <laughs> albums, best <laughs> and worst. Dave, sophomore sounds sophomore sounds more elegant. So it does. I'm on worst, it? Like yeah. it's yeah, yeah. I don't know if we should go with that, but yeah, it should be. It was a listener suggestion as well, I believe. It's one we've talked about plenty of times because obviously there's the whole mythos around you know difficult kind of second album syndrome, the, the sophomore slump. We'll get into it. It should be a good one. I think there's a, is there a sophomore album out this week or something that actually ties in possibly? There was, of course, St. Sisters one recently. But yeah, we're going to talk about the whole difficult second album thing. And if it applies, uh, let's hit the news sting, shall we? 
Hey, you heard about the good news? And it was a bit of a mixed reception at the pilot event that took place last weekend in Kilmainham that none of us attended. Uh, I did, however, go viral, Craig, despite not being at the gig itself. That's how I did. I missed it going viral. I'm really sorry. What, what was the... <laughs> how did you miss it? Um, well, I mean, somebody... I'm in about two weeks, but yeah, go on. Fair play. Fair play. I admired the restraint. Uh, somebody at the event, who will not be named, sent me a photograph. I was watching the England versus the Ukraine game. The England versus the Ukraine. Uh, and, you know, I was chilling out because I didn't want to go to the festival. I was like, it looks terrible. You know, it's not for me the lineup as well there's only two acts i'd like to see on it which two acts listener have a guess um so essentially it looked like you know kind of dystopian people kind of penned into cages and stuff um to a degree and i was just like yeah it's not really for me like i, I hate festivals so why would i want to go to this one so I, I stayed away and um i was sent an image and the image was of the big screen and it said Please use social media to tell the world you're having a great time. Hashtag pilot event. Oh, yeah, event. yeah. You shared that in, yeah, WhatsApp. Yeah, it was hilarious. And then there was like a, a rubber stamp. There was like a big government logo beneath it. And I, I was sent the image and I was just like, is this real? And the person who sent it was like, yes. So I was like, can I tweet it? And they said, yes. So I was like, all right. Easiest night's work of all time. I just sat there on the chair, put out the image on Twitter and I wrote, LOL. And next thing you fucking know is <laughs> that you're like crazy. That was it. I just said LOL. <laughs> LOL. <laughs> Targeting like, journalism, that's what you, you get with no encore. <laughs> I, I, I felt I, the picture kind of spoke for itself. Oh, listen, and it an sh- image, you know, speaks a thousand lols. <laughs> really yeah, does, that's what they it? say. Yeah. So it um, it blew up, you know. Uh, people even stole the image themselves and used it without credit to me, which is the mark of a good meme. Um, I mean, it wasn't my image to begin with, so I can't get too mad about that, and I won't. Um, but my mentions for the culture. My mentions were a mess, man. People were just like, "This, this isn't real. It can't be. It's clearly photoshopped. The government would never." And I was just like, I didn't reply to any of them. I liked a few of them, but I was like, I'm not getting involved. It's just a bit of fun. But people were going crazy. They're like, "Oh, it's like North Korea. It's Orwellian." And it's like, "Nah, it's just really, really cringeworthy and lame." And it is cringeworthy and lame. I felt very bad for whatever government intern had to dash that copy together. And like the one thing I will say, because I was on Today FM during the week with Matt Cooper talking about this, and the one thing I should stress is that like. I think some people don't realize that like at a big gig, at a big festival, having advertisements and so on during in, in between acts is not uncommon. Like it's quite common to have, you know, an ad for an upcoming show that is made by the same promoter like MTD or whatever. Yeah. And and it's also like, you know, you can do the social media thing. You can encourage people to use a hashtag like, you know, but usually you put a bit of creativity into it. I mean, you know this, you work in advertising, you have to come up with social copy all the time and it's just like you might have put up Hashtags something like are dead. I will say that. Are, are, are they? Yeah. Well, they, 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 I know they, it's not hashtags work, but it's just like whenever, you know, if a brand asks people to use a hashtag, that is absolute yeah, yeah. death. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> um, but it could be like, you know, what's the best act you've seen today? You know, use hashtag electric picking 2021 or whatever, like something very straightforward. But this was just, it was just so like the government are cool. You know, we're, we're the cool government. We're at the gig with you. And it was just, it was really, really embarrassing. People got really mad about it. Leo and again, probably I'm, was there, was he? <laughs> I don't know. Catherine Martin was there, I presume, because she's been kind of, you know, the one who's been, I guess, spearheading all these things. I, I will say that Neither Nine, rival podcaster who we, you know, will feud with forever, wrote an excellent piece on his website about the pilot event. It was the only piece I read, and I read a lot of reviews. A lot of the reviews I read were just pure fucking propaganda. Like, it was just embarrassing. It was like, gigs are back. This is great. And it was like, all right. But Niall, to his credit, wrote a very, very balanced piece, and he wrote about, you know, how this isn't necessarily the future of gigs. It's a temporary thing that the government clearly have to jump through hoops to do. Um, yeah, it, 
it wasn't great looking, and I'm glad I didn't go. And I'll take all those internet points all day long. Uh, you put the news together this week, though. There is actual news. So why don't you tell us about it, Craig? We crack into it. Okay, first headline. Norwegian company establishing doomsday vault for music. <laughs> Sounds so Dave, promising. You're, um, you're vaccinated. You're equipped to withstand one apocalypse. But um, I'm sure there's plenty more to come over the next 1,000 years. Apparently, That's the best spirit. way to preserve you is to bury you beneath ice and snow at a depth of 1,000 feet, because that's what this group are doing with this vault. Um, they're intending to preserve a huge variety of music's most important works on an Arctic island midway between the North Pole and Norway. Uh, it's this Oslo-based company, LR Management, and um, they're putting together this global music vault. They're saying it will last for 1,000 years. Um storage technology uses kind of binary coding and high density QR codes. I love that. Like in a thousand years, we'll still be using QR codes. <laughs> that isn't something that was like a fad five years ago, but who am I to judge? And well, apparently the vault's um, going to be able to withstand like electromagnetic pulses from like nuclear explosions, all that kind of shit. So like this is built to last, man. Who's setting this up? Like fucking Cobra Commander? Like this is just very super villain. Uh, we've been to Norway. That's my tie into this story. But we didn't see anything of this nature over there. It was all very wholesome. Um, yeah. Do, I mean, this do is we kind need of wholesome, this? right? Do we need this? Is, is this actually a thing? Do we need, like, of course does we the don't. world... It's like a sophisticated time capsule. Do you remember those were a thing? Did you have one of those as a kid where it's like this cardboard tube that you're supposed to bury in your back garden? I'm sure there was like a class in fucking primary school that made us do it. And I'm more than happy to forget about it, the experience. It's That's very Blue Peter to me, you know? It's kind of like... Yeah, it is. Well, to be honest, when I saw this story, I was like, is there a top five in this potentially? <laughs> like, <laughs> Go on. Because it'd be different to like a best songs ever, wouldn't it? It'd be like the songs or albums that represent humanity, right? Um, They haven't actually picked any yet. So there's going to be this weirdly sinister sounding Paris-based International Council <laughs> that's the whole name determining what, what music's going to go in and apparently there's going to be like uh, petitioning there's going to be various committees and national submissions and maybe we could get involved but yeah it's it's very close to do you remember that um, Voyager Golden Record thing I think back in the 70s Carl Sagan put it together with NASA and you had like Bach and you had Chuck Berry and people were outraged that like rock and roll was included um i think the beatles were supposed to be included but emi was like you can't have the rights to here comes the sun and the Beatles were like what we're not being sent into outer space and they were like no but um yeah one to watch with interest i guess dave uh two things here one did you see that inhaler are now the fab four per hot press they've christened them <laughs> the new fab four do you think that that's a fair uh bit of pressure to heap on the lad's shoulders um if they can manage to be the next wings, I think they'll be doing extremely <laughs> well. <laughs> I do not even see that in their future, but I could be wrong. Okay. Unless Hot Press um, were referring to, like, unless Hot Press's old Fab Four were you 2 themselves, which would They have done me. that, yeah, they have done yeah. that for you 2 But I think that they must know as well that, that that's basically a copyrighted thing. Uh, just to backtrack there, when you say, like, you know, there might be a top five in this, are you thinking, like, top five Dave and Craig capsule, time capsule albums or something? Like, like what we would Yeah, like, to, what music would you either, yeah, put in a time capsule or, like, send into space to represent humanity? Like, if there was nothing left, what would you have to include? <laughs> That's a very good top five suggestion. I think we should Isn't do it? this. Yeah. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it on this episode. Fuck it. Let's just go. <laughs> <laughs> right, um, so um, there's a word in the next news headline, Craig, that is... Uh, <laughs> Troubling. Is, of, it, is it the word Morrissey? <laughs> it is, yeah. 
it's a one of those words that we're you know like is, is beginning to maybe require its own musical sting slash uh immediate disclaimer i think what's he up to this week yeah he's maybe not the world's best representative i don't think he's going in any vault or time capsule although maybe he'd be best placed in a vault um he's hit back <laughs> at sparks <laughs> I kind of picked this story because of Sparks' inclusion. Um, Sparks, who we've talked about recently on this, they made um, my best duo of all time list. And a good couple of lads, as they've shown here. So, like, if you're into Morrissey, you'll know that along with the likes of Bowie and uh, New York Dolls, Sparks were one of his, like, childhood heroes. Um but Russell Mail, frontman for Sparks, has kind of spoken out. I miss these quotes initially. They're a couple of years old now, but basically touching on Morrissey's descent into reactionary right-wingery, I guess. Um, And he said, back in 2018, I'm totally in agreement with anybody being disillusioned with Morrissey because I am as well. It seemed so inconsistent, all these perspectives that he had on those various issues. Just stupid, dumb kind of things. I obviously don't agree with any of these things. They're just so ill-conceived and wrong. And Morrissey's given an interview last week or so, um... He doesn't talk to the press anymore, Dave, because, you know, they're nefarious. He talked to his nephew for his official website. <laughs> he's like, he's, any day now he's going to be on InfoWars, isn't he, Alex Jones? Or GB like, News. I think he'll probably pop up there, would he? GB News, <laughs> that new thing? Even GB News might be a bit too vanilla for him. Um, but yeah, he said that he wasn't upset by these comments. Uh, I said, amazing, no, because I'm quite used to it. I stood by Sparks for many years and I promoted them in my own humble way whenever I could. And they were famously people without opinions. <laughs> so I was surprised that they kicked me in the teeth. <laughs> it came across as an almost fiendish ingratitude. Oh, the pain of parting. They will always be important to me as a memory. <laughs> it's just like... Oh, typical Morrissey uh, melodrama. And, um, <coughs> you know, he gives good quotes, but then also awful, awful quotes. He was also talking about his hero, David Bowie, and hanging out with him in this interview. And um, <laughs> there was just one kind of line that tickled me where he was talking about <laughs> um, hanging out with Bowie. I don't know if he's kind of lacking self-awareness here because here's the quote. He was always laughing at something or smiling at least. Never spoke about anything in depth. I'd say something not remotely funny and he'd burst out laughing. <laughs> Which is just like... <laughs> yeah. Um, you and us both, I guess. Uh, Bowie. Did you... Um, I noticed... Uh, I, I did see a snippet of an interview, presumably this one, during the week. Did you notice that Morrissey... Um, like, because like, the, the, the spark thing that you read out there, like, I mean, like... I, I got. I got to give the devil his due. Like you know, there is a poetry to that witheringness, and he can yeah. he can be a very good wordsmith when he wants to be. But did you see that he um he he's come up with a name? He, he's tried to coin a new term for COVID. Yeah, do you want to? <laughs> do you want to unleash it is, on the world? <laughs> it's it's pathetic. Uh, he 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 referred to it as Convid. That Whoa. is so sub Morrissey, isn't it? That Woeful. is like. <laughs> Absolutely, the, boy, the is, boy's slipping. <laughs> that to me is actually somehow worse than covidiot. You know, when people use covidiot and they think they're yeah, really fucking because I mean that kind of works like in terms of the syllables and the sounds. Convid just convid. Is- it's so so bad. Like it's genuinely shocking. Like like it's like mate, whatever about the sentiment. You know, come on, <laughs> like that—that's a first draft if ever I've seen one. It's really you can bad. do better. Yeah, uh, let's move on, shall we? Yeah, we can move on to Johnny Marr, but actually, the story with Johnny Marr was he was reflecting on his time in the Smiths, and he said, um, 
at the time they kind of had a, a blind spot um, in terms of being obsessed with the media, particularly the, the singer. Um, but he went on, I picked this out because he went on to talk about how um, like Manchester had such a fruitful kind of music scene and stuff. And he was like, yeah, it's because we were all working class. And also we were like immigrants. And he was talking about like the Gallaghers and the fact that, the, you know, famous <laughs> convid deniers. Uh, no, well, actually Liam's fine. But yeah, he was saying, you know, it's, we, we, we've got Irish roots and uh, we come from immigrant families. And then he brings up the fact that he came, his family hailed from Kildare, my own neck of the woods. Incredible. And I was like very excited to see what he had to say. And he kind of, I mean, fair enough. Okay, his experience of Kildare was probably like 1970s Kildare, but it's a bit, I'll just read the quote. (laughs) He goes, um, reflecting on his own family who originally came from Kildare, Ireland, uh, Mara added, what rubbed off of me was not only their enthusiasm and pretty much their obsession for music, uh, which they still have to this day, but the awareness of the club scene, okay, grand, where all the show bands would play, and this thing about going out to let off some steam and be part of the community as well. The Irish, for example, are not really that dissimilar from the Eastern Europeans in that they all grew up in villages and a lot of them made their own music in their kitchens. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> were brothers and sisters and aunties and uncles and grandparents for entertainment and they brought that with them it's in the dna of working people um so yeah <laughs> i i was sorry i i was genuinely i swear i genuinely was going to jump in there and say that this sounds like that Stuart lee gag when he also says it's about honest working people on the move and then you just said it i was like wow it's the same sentiment i mean like there's probably some truth in this i, I don't think this there is, is quite sure. as this isn't quite as bad as that infamous eastenders episode from the 90s that depicted ireland as some kind of weird you know feudal bogland that doesn't have running water or electricity i think there probably is a lot of truth in like you know music being housed in kind of more intimate you know, places and i don't know about yeah. everything being being a village though that that's a bit you know strange yeah but i guess i guess you know when he might have been visiting as a youngster i mean it was a lot more rural back in the day and like i hear what he's saying he's well-intentioned um are you just um, are, are you just are you just really upset that the crossover of eras it didn't work out like like i could picture you and johnny mar going to nightclubs and stuff you know being thrown out of <laughs> yeah. nightclubs one hundred percent, and like even in terms of le- the crossover of eras in Leaksup, you know, Leaksup was famous back in the day for like having like huge fuck off gigs, right? <laughs> like Guinness Castle used to open up. They had the Rolling Stones play in Leaksup Village, Dave. <laughs> really? Back in the eighties. Yeah. Oh my god! And now it's like <laughs> the Riptide movement on a bank holiday weekend or something. There's just, great, it's the yeah. same thing, you know. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Just great photos of like um, Desmond Guinness or like the previous kind of owner of Guinness Castle hanging out with Mick Jagger in the castle and they're just like all dressed. It looks like they're living in the 1700s in some like banquet room. I'm just like, Mick Jagger was fucking loving this. <laughs> He's just completely oh, yeah. landed on his feet. 100%. Um, moving along um, to Pastures of Far to New Zealand, Dave. Um, all right, what's going on there? Particularly Radio Nova <laughs> news story. A New Zealand mum has named her children Metallica, Slayer and Pantera. Good honour. Yeah, she's anonymous at the moment. The news was shared by this um, Kiwi Sorry, filmmaker. She's, she, she's anonymous at the moment. That, th- this will not that last. Is, <laughs> yeah, David Farrier, who's a documentarian, um, he put together a Netflix series on dark tourism, which actually sounds interesting. I've yet to see it. But he's got... There's a few things missing in this story because it seems like he just has the kids' birth certificates and he's just relaying this on Twitter. Maybe he's putting together a documentary. I hope to God he is. Um, but yeah, he's confirmed that it's actually all true. Um, the New Zealand Registrar General 
Jeff Montgomery told him that there's no restrictions on naming babies after bands or albums, as long as the word used is not generally considered to be offensive or does not resemble an official rank or title, which is fair enough. Um, David says he became a bit suspicious when she also included Metallica's best album. Um, bit of editorialising there. And Justice for All in her kid's name too. Well, that's not so the best Metallica album. Metallica and Justice for All. Oh, and then whatever the surname is. Smith. But apparently it's 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 real. But that's just like... It's kind of yeah. cool. It's kind of cool. It's also kind of child abuse in a way. I mean, it's a tough one because like, in fairness, like you're automatically damning these kids to a lifetime of weirdness and bullying. I presume they can change their names at some point. Maybe it won't stick. And at the same time, I'm like, kind of cool. You know, <laughs> just, like, it, it's it Depends a on one. the kid, doesn't it? Like if you can pull it off. Who got the best one, though? Metallica, Slayer, or Pantera? I think Pantera is the best one Pantera, for, for, yeah. for a name. Like, then Slayer, then Metallica. Metallica is a bit too mumbly wordy. Um, yeah, agreed. Metallica is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a bit too awkward. Pantera kind of rules. I also kind of like having phrases as a middle name. That should just become a thing, I think, right? Really? Like Craig, Fre- Breath of Fresh Air Fitzpatrick? <laughs> yeah, I mean, people are calling me it anyway, so... <laughs> I don't know, like, uh, if, if 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 England win the Euros, like, maybe Harry Kane's kid would be, like, I don't know, Harold, it's coming home, Kane Jr. or something. Jesus could totally Christ. Work. No, that's horrible. Um, I, you gotta feel bad here, though, for Anthrax, the other member of the big four. I guess there wasn't a fourth kid, and if there was, that's surely where we would have gone. What about something contemporary, though? What about, like, Code Orange, or Slipknot, or Mastodon, you know? <laughs> yeah, Mastodon's possibly. pretty cool. Anthrax mightn't get through though, right? Because it's could it be perceived as an offensive word. I'd say so. If you had to, so if you, um, uh, we don't have children, um, no. and long we, may that we are last. looking to adopt, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but if if you had a child, and through some kind of wacky scenario, you had to name your child after an Irish band, who would you go with? I'm thinking Aslan. That sounds pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, Aslan, you've been thinking about this, have you? No, 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 in the last in the last 30 seconds, but I am I am half vaccinated now, so my brain is just starting to, you know, percolate and sizzle. Oh, I don't know. Could you use the singular of, like, Delorentos and go Delorento? That'd be kind of cool. Although That's your kid would yeah. then just become Del. Yeah. Or Del. <laughs> <laughs> That's not great. I mean, Aslan maybe is a bit too obvious. And, like, it's, you know, maybe there's more connotations with the whole lion, the religious lion thing. Um, yeah. yeah, it's a tricky one, you know. There's lots of good ones out there. After mentioned Riptide movement, you call your kid Riptide. They'll probably go to be a supervillain. <laughs> Fucking Riptide. Um, Future Kings of Spain. Yeah, I don't know. One we'll to think about. it on a future one to think episode, about. possibly. Let us know what you think, listener, at No Encore Show or patreon.com <laughs> slash No Encore. Tremendous uh, dedication <laughs> to uh, musical artists from that woman, anyway, which you wouldn't find in the ranks of Spotify, Dave. Oh, wow. Uh, uh, yeah, so that's box I see before me, Craig. <laughs> It is. This is ridiculous, these quotes we're about to read. Um, A former Spotify boss has said that artists are entitled (laughs) in asking for streaming rise. When I read this headline initially, I was like, is he saying they're entitled to a rise? And he is not saying that, Dave. Um, He was talking recently um, at... I don't know, some conference he was speaking to. He was actually being interviewed on Spotify's payment model by a songwriter. Um... And was, it, was it Morrissey's nephew that was doing this interview by any chance, was it? It was not Morrissey's nephew. Um, 
but like the comments are pretty ridiculous um so he talks about how um yeah he says we should talk about entitlement i mean i have an issue with taylor swift's comments i have this issue with it and we'll call it entitlement i mean i consider myself an artist because i'm an an inventor okay now i freely give away my patents for nothing i never collect royalties on anything he goes on to say, I think Taylor Swift doesn't need point zero 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 one more stream. The problem is this. Spotify was created to solve a problem. The problem was piracy and music distribution. The problem was to get artists' music out there. The problem was not to pay people money. What? <laughs> he keeps saying the problem was to distribute music. Not to give you money, okay? The problem was to distribute music. Surely the distribution was taken care of by the piracy. And surely the problem was all about people not getting paid. Um, uh, what do you make of this? Well, it I'm reminds me actually... I'm first name because it's a, it's a Mr. Anderson. Jim Anderson, yeah, former executive. Uh, Mr. So he's no Anderson. connected to Spotify. But if that's the kind of attitude coming out of the former ranks... Yeah, I mean, not great and also not surprising, I guess. You'd have to imagine that there is very much a company policy of, do you agree with taking all of the wealth from the musician? Sign here. Start on Monday. Um... It reminds me of when we had Reese DeBron on the show a couple months ago and we talked about the whole Arsenal Spotify connection thing. And Reese had a line where he was talking about how obviously there was kind of a failing business model with regards to labels and stuff and how people turned to Daniel Eck and Spotify and gave him control. And afterwards, when we got off the mic, Reese was like, oh, damn, he was like, I was this close to like quoting the Dark Knight there. I should have said, you know, like in their, you know, in their desperation, they turned to a man that they didn't fully understand. And that's kind of what it is. Uh, what we're saying I'm here is I'm kind of glad you didn't, but anyway. <laughs> I'll give him that one, you know. I mean, like, it's a good line. Um, it is, yeah. What we're saying here is that Daniel Ek is, in fact, a supervillain clown man who is Batman's arch nemesis, I suppose. Um, this <laughs> is depressing, I think. And but, but at the same time, I think you have to be this has to be your kind of attitude if you're on the other side of the coin. Um, this person clearly has no soul, but believes resolutely in their business model. And yeah, it's 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 not really like every time we do one of these stories, I'm, I just feel really bad that I'm like paying a tenner a month to Spotify, putting out links I to know. the show on Spotify. But what are you going to do? I mean, like, I'm sorry, but, like, unfortunately, like, uh, you know, it's the system, mate. It's a weird reframing of, like, when he just keeps saying, listen, the problem was getting the music out there. He's basically just saying, listen, we're giving you exposure. That's all he's saying. Yeah, which is, like, that. fucking hell. Uh, absolutely ridiculous in terms of um fuck that we turn to the euros yeah you mentioned that earlier on what what, what (laughs) (laughs) oh he performed for england dave he performed for the whole team and and england have performed england have performed for everyone certainly have with a plum um is it coming home I don't think, I hope not. Um, you might be listening to this podcast on Monday. I hope Italy fucking humble them. Um, <laughs> but I, I will say that, like, at this stage, I wanted them in the final because for narrative, you know, for peak narrative, peak drama. Um, but I was still saddened when Denmark fell to them last night. And what are you going to do? I don't hate the England team. I actually like Gareth Southgate quite a bit. I think they got a couple of likable players. At the same time, 
they are unbearable. Their media is unbearable. I really don't want them to win. But if they win, fuck it. Like, what are you going to do? It's like Liverpool winning the Premier League like a couple of years ago. It happened. I got on with my life. But I do hope Italy fucking murder them. That'll be great. And also, I love this Italy team. They're great. I love them. They're, Giorgio Chiellini is a fucking hero. Um, but yeah, Ed Sheeran has been spotted, like, uh, sitting with David Beckham in the stands. And I believe, Craig, I believe, as you say, he did, in fact, uh, treat England's lines to an intimate performance. What went down yeah, there? Yeah, he... he- <laughs> So he was talking on um, BBC's Crouchy's Year Late Euros, which is I haven't seen. I haven't matches. seen a single second of that. Oh man, you are lucky. You're one of the lucky ones. The TV's been like on post kind of match coverage, and I've I've caught some of it. It's like if you, it, it, it reminds me of like loads of those kind of nineties Channel Four shows. But just like if you sapped any of the kind of modicum of talent like a Chris Evans had or like a Badil and Skinner and you've just got Crouchy, it's fucking insufferable. Anyway, Ed Sheeran was on it. He was talking about that fateful night. Um, they were in St. George's Park HQ. <laughs> he did a few of his own songs for the lads. He did a DJ set. And then at the end, um, he held a sing-along with the players of the Lightning Seeds and Badil and Skinner classic Tree Lines, which we adore on this show. We've talked about oh, yeah. it. Big time, yeah. Unironically at this stage. So, the quote from uh, Dear Ed, At the end of the night, we're in a circle, all hands around. I mean, for me, just as an English boy, being in the centre of the England team, it was really great. I've had amazing moments in my life, but I don't think there's many moments that will top that. And I just kept thinking, that man has bigged up his Irish credentials so much <laughs> over the fucking years. <laughs> He's ditched his Galway girl. He's there in a fucking circle with Declan Rice and Jack Grealish. <laughs> All three of them could have played for the Republic of Ireland, and this is where they end up. You think Ed Sheeran would have been a pacey winger, do you, for Stephen Kenny? That could have been a different world. So, hang on. You mentioned Crouchy's... What's it called again? Crouchy's post-match year- knockout, <laughs> no, is it, or something? Crouchy's year-late Euros. Because oh, the whole joke is, oh, what great are they like? Stuff. It's a year late. It's still called 2020. <laughs> oh, man. You, you can really the ring bands. that for... Yeah, you, like, you can get so much out of that for an entire month of television coverage. Um, haven't seen it, but it reminded me of... Um, there's an astonishing piece on the When Saturday Comes football magazine website thing from back in, I think it's like, it must be either the 2010 World Cup or the 2014, maybe. James Corden had one of those shows. Um, and it was the same type of thing. Course. It was called World Cup Live or something. And it was all a bit bants. So I'm going to read now because I've, I've, I've dialed it up on my phone. Um, I'm going to read Taylor Parks for When Saturday Comes wrote this article. And I want to read a couple of paragraphs about it. So he's talking about Colin Murray and the BBC, but then he says, um, the never more visible James Corden. So this is obviously Corden prior to the American blow up that he had. Um, The never more visible James Corden, like Murray and his backroom team of would-be comedy legends, suffers from that curious hubris which convinces every media odd job that there's some kind of polymath. Corden may be a passable actor, but he's not a naturally funny man, nor a very likable personality, and even he must be sick of the sight of himself. Yet, ITV, having paid £6 million for his services, devised a show for Corden to front with his quick wit and personal charm, and broadcast the results at prime time for the duration of the tournament. And with sapping inevitability, James Corden's World Cup Live was truly, truly horrible. A cack-handed cross between Soccer AM's infantilism and TFI Friday's Class A shoutiness. 
Abby Clancy was hired to do what Abby Clancy does. The backroom boys worked out some skits about how Uruguay's players had long hair and looked like girls. A polo-shirted audience whooped with well-marshaled efficiency. Lovely stuff, barked Corden, banging his cards on the desk. <laughs> Somewhere in Britain, another library closed. Fucking yeah. amazing. That ending. Yeah, that fucking line at the end is absolute <laughs> chef's kiss. I love it. It's incredible. Uh, have you heard Ed Sheeran's new song? It's not great. No, I've not. What is it? Is it football related? It's just no, it's called um, it's, it's called song. it's called Bad Habits, in which he dresses up in a pink suit and sparkly oh, eye I saw makeup. Some stills and from he's the video, a vampire yeah. or something. And I think Pitchfork said that you know no more no artist is more committed to um, derivative you know music uh, that, than but it, dude. We, we are ninety minutes away from Ed Sheeran covering fucking Sweet Caroline, which is just inescapable at the moment. And I love Neil Diamond, but my god. <laughs> we're we're 90 minutes away from Ed Sheeran doing three lines 21 because that's going to happen <laughs> does does three lines like lose its impact I mean we, we've talked about this before I think it kind of does right it's yeah, all definitely, based yeah. in failure I think if they win something if they yeah, win something know. if they win something Ian Brody Frank Skinner and David Baddiel have to be shot at dawn <laughs> <laughs> firing squad on the fucking pitch game over I think over. they'd be more like burned at the stake it'd be like a Guy Fox kind of thing right <laughs> and Ed Sheeran is the one Trust doing up. it yeah it's perfect we booked this massacre perfectly uh, let's hope and pray let's, let's hope and pray that Italy win like 5-0 or something and that, and also that uh, I believe you and I have Italy in the sweepstakes as well so that's pretty good if they win yeah yeah um, mixing business and pleasure so I've put it I'm very much behind the lads I've got also um, Harry Kane to be top scorer though so Hopefully it's a goal fest. I think he's nearly there. If it was just, if he got a couple of goals, but then it was no, like, no, 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 if it was, no, if it was like an ace too, you know, where it's like Italy are out of sight at halftime. And then it's that case where it's like actually the opposing humble team gets like spectacular goals. That always happens. Like the best you really goal think, of the game is like. You really think we're in for a 10 goal thriller? <laughs> I hope so. Gotta have fate, man. Um, that sounds like a good song. I think George Michael wrote that one. He's not Mick Jagger, but he, Mick Jagger is the subject of your next story, isn't he, Craig? <laughs> yeah, which I erased <laughs> from the running order, Dave. I didn't I know that. A bit boring. <laughs> I didn't because I. So today I went out into town this morning and I um, took the notes that you put together and I emailed them to myself and I haven't seen the running order since. So I just assumed this was still in. I thought it was going to be a really juicy story because it was some. Um, music writer talking about how he went through this hellish experience where he was drafted into ghostwrite the already ghost written Mick Jagger um, memoir um, but then when I got into it there was no actual interaction with Mick I think he was hanging out in some Guinness castle or something so I just cut it Dave okay is that the end of the news section <laughs> yeah it is <laughs> okay fantastic we're leaving all this in we're not cutting this <laughs> let's uh let's top five it up shall we i mean we don't know if we're going to get a 10 goal thriller on sunday but we are going to give you 10 examples of the best Beautiful. and worst sophomore records. save the episode <laughs> listen i'm i'm flying without wings over here so let me ask you this question craig uh what is a sophomore album give me a primer on the word sophomore sophomore album and what is this difficult second album cliche yeah it's second album that's what it is dave <laughs> Yeah, I actually sorry. looked into it. I looked into it, right? And obviously sophomore being a bit of an American term, I didn't realise the sophomore slump came directly from, like, education. So sophomore slump initially was about um, a student kind of failing to live up to their relatively high standards uh, in first year. 
So it's like it refers to like the apathy of students in second year, but it's come to mean like singers and bands and second year blues, I believe they call it in the UK, Dave. Um, difficult second album sy- syndrome. A lot goes into it. It's kind of built up over the decades. Um, plenty of it has to do with. I guess, a runaway success with the debut and having, you know, the old cliche of like having your entire life to write the first album and then, you know, a year to two years to write the follow-up. There's also that kind of old chestnut of like the band's been on the road uh, for so long that all they can write about is how fed up they are with the road. Uh, So there's lots of pitfalls. There's also occasions, though, as we'll discover in this list, where after pretty inauspicious debut a band actually finds their feet on the second album. Um, there's lots of those examples in my best of. How did you approach, approach your worst list? Um, good, good, good instinct, I think, really. Um, nice. It was, it's, it's weird. I mean, like, it's, it was surprisingly harder than I thought it would be. There's, like, a lot of good second albums out there. <laughs> so, yeah. like, there's, there's a lot of people who... who, who Are we dispelling over- the myths this week? <laughs> We might be, yeah. We like, like we we talked about making the myths on the No Popcorn Doors episode, and now we're talking about you know debunking them. Um, I think it's interesting enough. I mean, there's a lot of inc- like, like there's examples of a band almost like bettering themselves in the second record, and like you could have the kind of debate. I don't want to give examples here because they could be in your top five, but I wasn't short on options necessarily. But I kind of came down to okay, these feel like the five. Um, and I'll start with, um, well, best and worst, uh, we, we need to finish on a high. So who goes first here? How does this work? You're going to go first. I will say, you, it's, funny you me- you fe- it's funny you mentioned The Doors, because in that wiki thing on Sophomore Slumps, uh, <laughs> where, where they talk about the musical trends, um, second album syndrome kind of often being characterized by struggles in changing musical style. Examples include The Doors, Waiting for the Sun, <laughs> which is a 1968 album, and thus I think the first maybe example of a difficult second album, so that ties in quite nicely. Um, take us away with your number five, though, Dave. Yeah, I will. Jim Morrison is not on my list, but uh, this artistic figure definitely has cult status already. Uh, it's at number five for me, because it's kind of a let's get this one out of the way, but I also had to include it. Let's go. Well, yeah, of course, man. It's Lords and Melodrama, which is my number five shout for the worst sophomore albums. Now, I appreciate that I'm Craig. Craig Craig's got a face on him, and it's very much. And I understand. No, I'm just thinking you really hate that album. I really do. I'm yeah, I mean, like, to be honest, we, I, I debated skipping right past this one because, like, uh, we'd covered this on our overrated albums. Spoiler for that episode. Go back and listen. That's a great one. And Craig Fitzpatrick had some beautiful words about LCD sound system on that top five, which I often go <laughs> back to and enjoy. Um, <laughs> any listener of this show on a regular basis will 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 know that i'm i'm not into lord i like the first album quite a lot that's very Irish. i like the first album i i like the first album pure heroin quite a bit and i was like she's great and then i just hated this from 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 the lead single green light there onwards uh, i appreciate that i'm very much in the minority i appreciate that this is the album that turned her into a supernova 
I think that there are a couple of tracks on this album I do like, um, but overall I found it to be incredibly cloying, incredibly obnoxious, and what she's all about. I can't stand her, and we actually haven't talked about this because I wasn't on the episode when you talked about her recently, but like that recent single of hers, Solar Power, Yeah, I got about five seconds in and I wanted to claw my own throat out. I think it's pathetic. I hate it so much. And I don't understand the appeal and I don't understand this record at all. And I just thought, well, look, listen, yeah, I'm a bit of a broken record, but this record breaks me. So there you go. Sorry. Yeah. When I mentioned, you know, bands for the second album drawing on touring life and it being so draining for the listener, I guess this is a situation where Lord's drawing on adolescence and her kind of like getting to party a bit and kind of go wild and if you're beyond a certain age, just the way she kind of communicates it, it is quite draining in the same way. I do think there's some good songs on it. I think it's a massive fall off from the debut, to be sure. And even the production on it sounds very of the time, starting to kind of date. Not a bad selection, Dave. Well, I will Not say just in clo- I, I will say just in closing on this that like ultimately, you know, I still want the best for Lords. I am concerned. Course, yeah. The I, I think the continued relationship with Jank Ansonoff is, is 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 speaks to what you were just saying. We're going to get very homogenous, generic stuff. Um, and listen, like, this album in no way represents a slump because it, it, it ignited her career. But uh, in the same, in doing so, I think it, I, like I think I think it woke up a very very smug monster that I want nothing to do with. So, like I say, sorry. Maybe the fourth album will be good because the third one sure won't be. Yeah, there's only room for one smug monster in our lives, and that's Morrissey in the new section. <laughs> in terms of how I went about selecting sorry, albums... Sorry, walk that back. <laughs> like, we're not endorsing I said him. in the new section, <laughs> as a feature of the new section. We can't go from slamming Lord to, like, faux-praising Morrissey. Like, this is the stuff of cancellation. Okay, go, 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 go. I think Best. that was a fair statement. Yeah, it's a fair Best. statement. I'm just covering all angles, you know me. There is a lot of good, really good, absolutely classic uh, second albums, to be fair. Um, so I had to come up with some rules for myself. For instance, um, the Blue Niles Hats is a perfect album, but A Walk Across the Rooftops, the debut, is nearly perfect in my eyes. So I'm like, eh, it doesn't quite cut it. I felt the same about, I was thinking about Neutral Milk Hotels um, on Avery Island being the debut. And like, was that kind of, then did they really step up? Um, I actually really like On Avery Island and there's loads of examples, Paul's Boutique from Beastie Boys. So basically I was looking at albums where the act was kind of either penned into a corner by the debut um, and they just kind of turned things around either from commercial pressure or just trying to find a new lease of creativity or really coming out of nowhere, just a kind of quantum leap. And in this case, my number five, it's really a a startling evolution. I don't think this will be a surprise for a lot of people. It is weird to think of this band as potentially being one hit wonders before this arrived. It's Radiohead, it's The Benz, the track is Nice Dream, going for a little deep cut there, um, because I think overall The Benz is quite overplayed, and we're at a point where I think maybe 
in their pantheon of absolute masterpieces it gets a little overlooked but i think you don't really have radiohead or any of the kind of albums that came after if they don't deliver this and it's kind of I mean, I don't know when the last time you heard Pablo Honey was, Dave, but I went back to it this week and I can't... It's unbelievable that it was the same band. It's, like, perfectly fine, just kind of quite insipid, unimaginative, like, indie with a few kind of tunes in it. It's got creep, though. Let me tell you. <laughs> that song creep. that everyone loves. <laughs> that one hit. Who did it recently with Dave Grohl with someone else? <laughs> There was that sounds some a bit weird right, yeah. collaboration of like Dave Grohl and I think Creep slaps. I don't know why people give it a hard time. I think it actually is. Uh, Dave Chappelle says Sonic Architect. Dave, Adam. Dave Chappelle it. and Foo Fighters. Dave yes. Grohl and Dave Chappelle doing Creep is. I feel like in America that's a, still a touchstone for Radiohead, and just you can imagine Tom York waking up to that news and being like, "They did what?" I think Creep fucking rules. It is like I, I don't have the band themselves been like, "Ah, oh, yeah, we're not." They don't play it live, right? Is that, is that correct or something? I think they've done it like once in the last decade or so, just as almost kind of an ironic thing. The band, yeah, have kind of disowned it for a long time. They've disowned um, one of the songs from the Benz, uh, "High and Dry," which I think is wonderful as well. I always remember Moby as well saying like, I love Radiohead, but I wish they'd write more nice songs like High and Dry. And yeah, Tom York is like, I feel physically sick when I think about High and Dry just because it was a bit too commercial. Um, But yeah, no, like that song, like Creep absolutely blew up for them. They were huge in the States, um, kind of right out of the gates with that debut. They toured America. Tom York was like... Instantly kind of rich enough to buy his own gaff in like Oxford and was of course just completely miserable and <laughs> was just like this can't be the band's legacy. Um, weirdly the kind of intensity of the time period and the label kind of putting pressure on them to kind of write another creep inspired him and he just wrote this batch of kind of songs that were to my ears on a completely different level. They weren't quite creep-like, uh, they weren't quite pop he always attributes it to um, seeing they were going through a turbulent time in the studio and he went to see Jeff Buckley play in Islington when he was over in the UK uh, who he hadn't properly heard before and just like Buckley's falsetto apparently on the night gave Tom York the confidence to sing in falsetto and that just unlocked a kind of whole new world of creativity for him and this is what came out and I think the Benz it does stand up I haven't listened to it in a long time I went back to it this week as well and I'm just like it is a quantum leap Ed Power uh, who we've talked about on this show before uh, music journalist wrote an article recently enough saying that the Benz was perhaps the worst great album of all time and his point was that like it inspired so many bands like Coldplay and Travis and, you know, far then even more like kind of inferior bands, which is fair enough. It was a hugely influential album. Radiohead kind of immediately moved on, but there's a lot of interesting stuff on it, not least the closer Street Spirit, which is just like pretty incredible. And there's some just, incredible qu- quotes. Just is a great song, isn't just it? Just is so good. My Iron Lung, I think, was apparently this song. It fronted an EP before this album came out and it was like the song that apparently saved the band and they were just like, okay, we don't have to do really standard indie pop. We can go somewhere else. I think Planet Telex as an opener is incredible. Fake Plastic Trees just shows the difference in Tom York's lyric writing from the debut where he's like, you know, the debut has songs like Anyone Can Play Guitar and like early singles like Pop Is Dead where you just look at the lyrics and you're like cringing. And this was so graceful, so great. And yeah, just made Radiohead, which I think we can all be thankful for, right? 
I love the artwork. It's like a PlayStation 1 horror game or something. So good, um, yeah. That's a good show. It's really, I'm delighted that you picked this because um, just this week I was like, right, fuck it. I'm going to try, I've, I've, I've never, uh, we, we did, we, we've done, I think we've done like an episode about Radiohead and like where to start with them. I think Zara Hedman was on there a while ago and it was like, you know, I, I still have never fully cracked the code with them. I, I'm highly aware of them. I've listened to them a lot. I like them. I grew up listening to them in some ways, but I never fully got it. But actually, weirdly enough, you mentioned the whole American touchdown thing of creep. I watched, um that new netflix film like fear street 1994 and that okay. is a film that is taking the absolute piss with its needle drops like nine snails closer in the first 30 seconds i was like come on lads but they play creep of course and it just made me go you know what uh, fuck it i'm gonna go out and i'm gonna buy a couple of radiohead records on vinyl because Ooh. obviously i'm big into vinyl now. and that might be my that might be my way of actually finally just giving them the proper attention that they deserve and i'm gonna go for the bends and i'm gonna go for okay computer you know basic that i am to start with essentially so i I was thinking about That's the nice Benz this week, and I wasn't even thinking about it in the context of this top five. So it coming up here is fate. You know, it's it's got to be done. So excellent choice. And for me, um, for in the interest of balance, I've trashed Lord as I want to do, and now I'm going to trash something I love. No, Ah, yes, the complex lyrical subtlety mastery of Jonathan Davis, frontman of Korn, and this is mm-hmm. Life is Peachy from 1996, their second album. That song is Adidas, and he spelled it out what that meant to him. A song I actually don't mind at all, and I love the snare drum in it. It's kind of almost like Lars Ulrich saying anger before Lars Ulrich saying anger. Um, this is Korn's second album, and I remember like when I was getting into the band, they had a few albums out at that point, because it would have been around, like I think they had four albums out when I cottoned on to them and i remember reading in kerrang and reading in other places that like life is peachy was generally like a two out of five it was regarded as not a very good album and that is the case i mean it's got some good stuff on it um but generally it's got a lot of trash i mean uh you've got like a you got an ice cube cover two songs later you got a cover of lowrider by war you know it's just really indulgent and has it's very formless it's very forgettable um, like I say, there's one or two kind of long-standing gems that have made it into like, like I think Twist is a really fun opener. Good God is all right. I do like Adidas, but generally, it's just really kind of flabby and not coherent and just I don't know what was really going on at the time in terms of like they're obviously on their way. But of course, we talked recently on the on the show about Follow the Leader, their third record, which would follow this, and how that blew them up massively. And of course, that has its own issues, uh, haha, um, including that Fred Durst song that you played. And All you in the family, baby. Yeah, correctly cited as a pretty bad nadir for the new metal world. But yeah, Life is Peachy is just, it, it's just, it's it's not a good record. And and like, the, I, I, the first Korn album is incredibly strong. I think it still holds up. I think albums three and four are also really, really good. They kind of go off in a bit of a more kind of poppy direction beyond that point. And I've, I've long since tapped out, but I did see them live a couple of years ago in Canada. It was an awful lot of fun. They played a couple of cuts off this and it was enjoyable. But generally, I think even the band themselves have just been like, yeah, whatever. Like this was, it, it just felt very, very kind of by committee or something. And at the same time, totally unfocused. And it just doesn't work. Even like it's songs sound like they're from different production styles and sessions from one to the other. It's for completionists only, really. Um, it's kind of interesting that they bounce back from this into Fall of the Leader, which of course has tracks like Freak on a Leash and It's On and is generally regarded as one of the high points of the new metal genre. But 
Yeah, this was them circling the drain, really. So it could have killed them. It didn't. And it has to be up there with one of the definitions of a sophomore slump because it is a fucking slump. Yeah, I was going to say it sounds like a classic slump where it's just like the material wasn't there. They were probably j- quite jaded from just being on the roads. Um, you know, getting everything out there with the debut. Um, sounds like a good shout, to be for sure. Okay. My you haven't heard it, have you? <laughs> <laughs> Life's peachy. No. Like, I, I, picture like, I've heard maybe two corn albums all the way through. Okay, I would say. really? Really? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I always give, remember. Give it a go. I know. <laughs> I was going to say give the first one a go, but you always remember? No, I've heard I've heard the first one for sure. But I always remember like the album covers being around and in like mates' bedrooms and stuff um, back when we were in our teens. And I was just like, never really dipped in, never went deep on corn. There was just something about them that never really clicked with me. I can understand that completely. I mean, even me, who was briefly a a huge fan, I haven't really clung to them forever. And, you know, I I think any argument against them I could probably support, but they got some bangers. Life is Peachy does not. I mean, you say you can understand that, but I did have a copy of, like, fucking Chocolate Starfish and the hot dog flavor of water, so there's no real excuse, you know what I mean? Well, that has a lot of good stuff on there, Craig, including um, the amazing My Way, which only only the other day, <laughs> My myself, myself, myself and Richard Chambers were sitting at the kitchen table and we were re-watching the Stone Cold Steve Austin versus The Rock promo video from WrestleMania X7, and just the... The incredible use of My Way by Limp Bizkit. So that has actually kind of transcended time and space. I think you'll agree. You won't agree. <laughs> Agreed. <will you>? Agreed. <laughs> My number four. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we've, we've said, you know, the pressure of the kind of sophomore album wasn't quite there yet in the 60s. If the door is kind of invented in 68. And it's probably because, like, the album hadn't quite taken on, like, the mythical status that it has now. It's this, like, cultural artifact that could rub shoulders with, I don't know great american novels and michelangelo's david or something it was sergeant pepper to probably change that as we learned in my most overrated albums list way back when um but yeah like it kind of took artists more time to find their feet so they were allowed you know a couple of not quite stinkers but albums of covers and just like finding their voice so it was quite remarkable with this one then that second album into a solo career uh this guy seemed so fully formed on a second album which arrived I think four months after the debut here it is Hello cowgirl in the sand Hello cowgirl in the sand Is this place at your command Can I stay here for a while Can I see Neil Young, uh, that was Cowgirl in the Sand from 1969's Everybody Knows This Is Nowhere, so immediately showing up the doors from here previously. And as I said, um, released four months after his solo debut, which was just called Neil Young. And listening to it this week, it's like, it's kind of fine, but flat. And it's not really Neil Young. It's kind of oddly dated, kind of sonically in terms of outlook. And then this just feels like sheer kind of technical or in comparison i don't know what was going on really it's like monumental achievement really um he was about 24 years old and he sounds like neil young sounds now 
like his voice is like right in place um that kind of blueprint for his sound suddenly comes in and it comes in because he brings in the band crazy horse who are just all over this and so good um bruce miroff in rolling stone was writing about it and he was talking about young's voice and just saying it's like this perpetually mournful uh without being maudlin or pathetic it hints at a world in which sorrow underlies everything because that world is recognizable to most of us young singing is often strangely moving which is dead in the money um and then years later in pitchfork i think uh what was it mark richardson was saying like the opening riff to cinnamon girl erases the memory of neil young the debut completely in about five seconds which is true so you've got cowgirl in the sound sand which is this long kind of song pretty remarkable book ending the album with cinnamon girl which is just like such a big neil young staple at this point, along with Down by the River, the title track, most of what's in between, I think the track The Losing End is merely like a kind of B plus, but it's just so accomplished. And it sounds like grunge has arrived two decades early, but kind of a bit more glamorous. Apparently Neil Young wrote like every track on it when it like in the over the course of one day. It was like I'm not sure if that's true. You you hear these things being floated about, it's like Dolly Parton writing. Um I Will Always Love You and Jolene in the same afternoon. He wrote this entire album one day while he was suffering from a high fever, apparently. And yeah, I guess he was just like kind of tripping out by being sick because it's crazy. It's crunchy and fun. It's like just really good hard rock. Um, Still sounds great. Production's so warm. It's easy to kind of slip into. And I don't think it's quite as heralded as like some of his other stuff. So you know, if you're starting with Neil Young, you might go to a Harvest or like an After the Gold Rush, which are great places to go if you want to listen to some all-timers. But if you want to be a bit more discerning and cool, uh, try this on and maybe like On the Beach, which is like a cult favourite. And it's great. It's like these mood pieces with actual tunes. After the Gold Rush was the first Neil Young album I ever heard, I think, Um, which is still obviously up there as an all-time classic. Um, something I always like to throw at you, Craig, when we talk about like legend artists, you know, kind of like canon artists. Um, and for someone who might be listening, he might be like, oh, look, you know, obviously I know Neil Young, but I don't know Neil Young. What's the album to start with, do you reckon? And is it this one? I think this is a really good way in because like there's kind of long songs on it, but it's it's not too lyrically heavy unlike the debut but there's some great lines there and the playing is so kind of contagious and fun and vibrant like just the way he's bouncing off crazy horse is fantastic um you've got danny witten on it um just the kind of twin guitar thing they had on was is incredible uh he died much too young um song the needle and the damage done was actually written about him uh passing away from like his heroin problem but just they were on such form and I think like Neil has been trying to replicate this sound um, for decades and he's had great success doing it. If you go and see a live Neil Young show and Crazy Horse are in tow, um, they will be channeling the stuff on this. So I think this is a really good starting point for people. Yeah. Well, I wanted to have an ending point in my top five for an act that did not get past their second album. So with that, I give you this.
quiet, crusading anti-vax hero Ian Brown of The Stone Roses. And this is <laughs> Second Coming, which was their last studio album. Damn it, we really lost a good one. Uh, that's Ten Story Love Song, which to me just is like the ultimate football terrace nothing song. I feel like that song in particular inspired a litany of like, you know, One Night Only and The Enemy and The Twang, etc. Um, yeah. An album that generally I think is accepted as being a pretty bad album. This is basically like, oh fuck, we've no more ideas. <laughs> this is over. Uh, the album, essentially. Uh, I'm going to quote you from Rolling Stone here. He gave the album two out of five. And they said uh, that the songs are tuneless, retro-psychedelic grooves bloated to six-plus minutes in length. And, yeah, I mean, I don't really know how to really rate the career of the Stone Roses. I think that the first album has some incredible stuff. It's probably rightfully regarded as iconic. Everything from the paint-speckled accompanying promo shoots to some genuinely great songs, like, fair enough. But Second Coming was just, like... I, I, I obviously wasn't, you know, au fait with music too hard when this came out in, I believe, the end of 1994. Um, yeah. But I have to wonder if, whether it was management, the label, and just like journalists for The Enemy and Melody Maker, if they were like, oh, fuck, <laughs> the arse has completely fallen out of this band. It's done, right? Because it does feel like, shit, they got nothing. It's done. Yeah, I think probably people weren't thinking that at that point because they were like, well, we've got Oasis <laughs> at this point, do you know what I mean? They've already been replaced. And yeah, it's kind of hard to say what went wrong. I think the personnel just kind of, there was a lot of clashes and internal strife um, in terms of the music itself. John Squire, I think, kind of took over and he's a, I really like his guitar, but he was just on a total like Led Zeppelin trip. And he's just like, as you said, these songs are just going to turn into like guitar wig outs and <laughs> really retro throwback stuff. And like the Stone Roses are always kind of heralded as, you know, they brought about the Manchester sound and they were kind of pushing um, British guitar music forward. And actually really like the debut is classic, but it's pretty throwback. And outside of Fool's Gold, just having some interesting grooves. They were kind of a throwback anyway, but this was just was just stale on arrival. Very flabby. And yeah, they didn't follow it up. They said they were going to. Do you remember that whole the comeback, of course, with some uh, infamously terrible live shows? And they tested the waters with a few singles. Uh, what was the first one? All for One, wasn't All it? All for One. Yeah, this is back in 2016. They released two singles to basically do a cash grab tour that included a date over here in uh, Jolly Old Ireland. Uh, can you name the other song, which as it stands I is the last single that they've yeah, ever released? And it released. was actually, it was far better than All for One. So it was like a C minus. <laughs> it was called, um, it was called Beautiful Thing. That's what it was called. Beautiful Thing. Yeah, there was at least a bit of a groove they got into there, but my God. And I always remember, like, they were so bullish when they had the press conference going back and Manny in interviews would be like, you know, if we were still together, we'd, you know, move mountains and all these bands don't know what's coming and blah, blah, I didn't blah. believe and it then, for a second. I didn't believe it for a second and nobody should have. It was very clear that they were like, come to our gigs, please. We're going to make some money and then we're going to go away again. This is a band that have, like, a couple of greatest hits albums, despite having two records, like, which is yeah. hilarious. Their impact kind of far outweighs the actual output. And I do think they genuinely believed in their own kind of, uh, you know, hype that they generated because they did. There were stories of them like getting back into studio together and just grinding out these singles and kind of realizing after like six months, this ain't happening <laughs> and just kind of quietly like no more were said. But um, yeah, this was this was like 
the end of them. And when he had, when it arrived, it was like on the wave of Britpop. Music had moved on. Cool Britannia was coming. And this album, I guess we could maybe thank for it. I know it's kind of like a terrible Beauty is Born, but uh, it's still a great album. Here it is. My beloved Blur, it's For Tomorrow taken from Modern Life is Rubbish. Um, that might still be my favourite Blur song. It's again, you know, it's with Radiohead, hard to imagine how... At this point, Blur were kind of almost also rants. Like, they were in the same league as, like, a Shed 7 or a Menswear. Like, these bands that would kind of rock up in their Britpop wake. Uh, maybe a bit better. They had some songs. But the debut album, Leisure, is very, very hit and miss. Um, There's No Water Way was kind of success for them, a minor key success. Um, Sing is a remarkable track. Um, That's kind of the one standout. But they were like, apart from that, it was kind of pretty lightweight stuff. They were also riding this like Manchester wave, which was like long over and the Stone Roses had like disappeared at this point and they were doing like shoegaze stuff. It's just weird to think of Blur as this kind of baggy band with kind of the longer hair and being a bit aimless. And yeah, they had some success. They went to the US just to kind of try and get a foothold and they kind of nearly fell apart famously. They were, they did 44 dates right across the country. The band was in complete disarray, apparently. Um, They were kind of (laughs) tackling America when grunge was in full swing and they were kind of nowhere in terms of their sound. They were getting terrible responses. The whole group was like drinking to blackout and they were like breaking into fistfights with the audience and with each other. So they're like homesick. And um, this album became what they called a kind of like um, a contempt for everything American. But Damon Alron would go, go on to say that actually it just became about it's not really Britpop's kind of triumphant thing of like, oh, it's great to be British. What Blur was doing was a bit more nuanced. And it was like, we could see this uh, creeping kind of globalism culturally in terms of Britain. So we're just trying to capture in quite a cheeky way kind of the old kind of stuff and tap into the kinks a bit, which Damon Albarn really found his voice doing, just writing these really kind of on-point vignettes about English life in a way that somehow worked. I think Modern Life is rubbish is still fantastic. It's still, it doesn't dip into the kind of mockney caricatures that like, Park Life is a brilliant album, but even at that point, they were kind of like hamming it up a bit slightly and Britpop had kicked in. Some of it was getting insufferable, but this is just full of like really lean, sparkling pop songs with like spiky guitar. They also do that very English thing where they're just like, (laughs) they saw like back in Britain, Suede were getting really big. And I love how, like, they turn, like, it's like football rivalries between bands, particularly in the 90s, where Damon Albarn was like, my my only wish in life was, like, to one-up Suede. We had to beat Suede when we got back. <laughs> and he somehow did it. And it's just, like, so petty. But there's something about that I love about, like, these kind of scene bands in England where it's just, like, it's kind of cool. Um, 
And yeah, they came up with some great songs. The likes of Blue Jeans, one of Damon Albarn's great ballads, which is like a prototype for a lot of what to come. And yeah, it's, this again would be my starting point for Blur. Um, as much as they would kind of discover Stephen Malcolmus and Pavement and do experimental things on other classic albums, whenever they get back together, they kind of return to this sound as a touchstone and break out the Fred Perry t-shirts. Uh, but it sounds good. <laughs> Um, Park Life was my way in back in the mid-90s as a youngster. I thought Damon Albarn was the coolest guy in the world. I thought Blur was yeah, the coolest band in the world. for a I moment. Were, <laughs> I thought they fucking ruled. I'm still not sure where, how I feel about them in their place in the canon, um, but they you know, they have some incredible, incredible stuff. I should note, uh, Sonic Architect Adam is urging us, and also the listener, to check out the Britpop episode of This Is Pop on Netflix. I actually oh, okay. haven't got to that show yet. People are raving about it, apparently. Like, you know, I know you talked recently about the T-Pain episode and the Autotune, so yeah. I'm looking forward to diving into that. I've yet to get there, so I'm glad to learn that there is a Britpop episode, and it comes with Adam's thumbs up the my runner up though in the worst albums corner i think is just one big thumbs down let's do it Yeah, it's the sound of, uh, you know, drunk lads being cool at festivals and doing some dad dancing. It's the sound of jeans being sold in Top Man. It's the sound of Johnny Burrell and Razorlight. And of course, they're taking second album, over the world. <laughs> the second album, they thought. which is called Razorlight. That song is uh, in the morning, of course. I think, I think it was the lead single. Or maybe, maybe maybe before I fall to pieces was I can't remember but like this this is of course yeah. this is of course the record with America on it it's 2006 and it is often cited on the show by me as like the moment when I needed I knew I should stop buying Q magazine when they gave it five stars five stars um, baby <laughs> also can I just note that this week when I was doing some research. I don't know. If, I don't know if it's Radio X or if it was just some website I've never heard of before. But like, I looked up, you know, a list of here are the ten worst sophomore albums, second albums, whatever. And someone has Razorlight in their list, but they have Slipway Fires, which is their third album. So maybe they're just oh. like, maybe they were so haunted by this album that they just <laughs> erased it from their memory. Um, I think the reason I've chosen this one, and I think you uh, you had a you had a big reaction there when I played that thing. I think you thought it was going to be my number one, but it is not my number one. Um, this to me was, I certainly didn't love Razorlight at the time. I don't even know if I liked them. But, you know, as we've talked before, songs in particular, like Somewhere Else off the first record, is a is a bit of a guilty pleasure. I know guilty pleasures don't exist, but if guilty pleasures exist, well, then Somewhere Else by Razorlight is the guilty pleasure I think we're all led to have. Uh, they had something, right? But this, this yeah. is where they become... Just mass market homogenization. Johnny Burrell is wearing white jeans all the time. He thinks he is topless. God's gift to <laughs> topless, God's gift to rock star, dumb and women and the music world itself. And I just don't think the songs were there. Moreover, I think that the songs that were here were skin crawlingly bad at times and just, you know, I mean, this this song is, is made to be played in a skins montage and nothing else. It's just, I mean, it, it's weirdly injured. They've weirdly injured. But yeah, I just... People talk all the time about red flags. You know, if you're on a date with someone and they've got a copy of American Psycho on their shelf, get out of there. If I was ever in a situation where I went back to some lady's apartment, maybe they're a nurse, I don't know. But essentially, if I see razor light, razor light in there, I'm, I'm out the door, pal. It's, it's done. I can't do it. My memory of this song was, it was my leaving cert year. And this was the lead single. And I was going to an exam one morning 
and I think like the strawberry alarm clock or something like FM 104 was on and they played this for all the students and then at the end they were like oh yeah that lyric like in the morning uh we're not going to remember a thing or whatever uh good luck with that and I remember just thinking fuck me Razor Light have cursed me <laughs> I got through it this is just uh you can hear like the breathy hubris of the man in every line he knows he's going to be absolutely major it's so it's such a bland album it's just like everything interesting about Razor Light's gone I think the first album stands up I think you should be guilty at all uh, for listening to it I think it's good um, but yeah at this point he's like yeah white jeans topless there was that story of like he was going out with cursed and Dunst and like one of the big stories was like he was like on a motorbike like riding the motorbike around her house and I think she was interviewed about it years later and she's like yeah I don't know what he was up to um, that was just a weird moment it was a weird moment in rock um, do you remember the whole Live Aid thing as well where he's just like quoting Bob Geldof and quoting John Lennon and then he's like here's my quote sign the fucking petition and everyone is just like what's happening who are you and then he got uh, he got punched out backstage didn't he after that <laughs> yeah Jesus Christ um, they're back though aren't they uh, they're doing some kind original, of original, the original lineup. lineup yeah yeah some kind of reunion thing is it just for gigs yeah we need to get him on the podcast because I just find him endlessly fascinating I would love to interview him I, I, I've tried to before and when I was with Joe it came close but I just couldn't get him and I was like nah you're grand and they were like well we can get you someone from Morchiba instead and I was like no no <laughs> it's Johnny Burrell or it's no no nothing so yeah I, the, the, we'll the, hunt, the hunt goes on Okay, uh, let's wash that away with my runner-up. Uh, it's the follow-up to a quite enjoyable work of kind of ambient um, instrumentals. Um, but this is just bustling genius with vocals. Stars and Sons, taken from You Forgot It In People, 2002 album from Broken Social Scene. And yeah, this was just a tremendous organic evolution of bands that were formed around Kevin Drew and Brendan Canning. Um, The first album, Feel Good Lost, is, as I was saying, it's quite nice. There's a lot to love about it. When you listen to it now, it feels almost though like a kind of come down coda for this album, which would follow it. And you know, it was made on a kind of very vibrant Toronto indie scene with just a lot of their friends kind of helping them. And then when they brought it on the road, they were just like, okay, we've only got instrumentals. We need to add vocals. We need to build up this show. We need to bring our friends on the road with us. And just over time, the kind of band grew and grew through these live shows and new songs started to form. And suddenly they were kind of a completely different band um, that had upwards of 14 people. I think on this album in total, they had um it was like an 11 piece collective as long as uh, you know you'd guest stars as well the likes of kind of feist just doing kind of amazing stuff on it and it's just it's, it's such a good album it's so rich <laughs> it's so like densely packed like kevin drew i saw a quote from him this week where he's talking about how he was scared initially that you know people wouldn't embrace this idea he had of just having like a shitload of sounds on the album and just throwing on everyone he knew and just somehow dragging it into like proper song style and he pulls it off somehow and i i come back to it so often it's 
you know, if I had to pick of kind of a mode of sound or like an aesthetic or, or, you know, from production to a general vibe just to live inside constantly, this is just so inviting. It sounds like kind of hot summer tarmac or like, I don't know, petrichor after like a short welcome shower. It's great. And the switch ups just from one song to the next, um, like you can have an absolute, you know, rager like almost climbs really where you're just going insane to it and then something like anthems for a 17 year old girl they're doing such interesting weird things there's weird elements and textures to every song but they're so sticky as well they're just instantly kind of catchy and they stay with you and from that whole like very fertile canadian scene at the time i think this is the one i'd have this any day over funeral much as i kind of respect um arcade fire's debut album and you know some of what they did thereafter but i just think yeah this is the one um and we have a tendency i think to kind of lionize you know solo genius and just kind of we hang a lot on kind of solo stars and things like that but i think when you have a collective happening like this where there's so many variables and people coming in and just adding their own splashes and like there's so many moving parts it's got to be harder to do and pull off and it doesn't happen very often and they just created a moment They've come close again a few times. Um, Hug of Thunder, I think it was their last record we reviewed in the show and we all really enjoyed it. It was great. Um, the self-titled album is pretty great. Um, but yeah, this is the one for me. Yeah, I mean, a band that we have talked about quite a bit, a band that former yeah. former co-host Colm Regan holds near and dear to his heart. Hug of Thunder, yeah, that, that was a very good record, I have to say. It was, uh, again, th- these are one of those bands for me where like, I've just never fully got the, the, the physical connection with, with, with it, you know? Uh, and that's kind of my whole thing with music. And I've seen about this today as well, where I'm having a weird week where I just threw on like Pixies today for the first time in forever. And I was just like, oh my God, it was like, I've how did I forget that this is like maybe the best band of all time? Or I was listening to like uh, the Prodigies Breathe recently. And I was like, how did I forget that this is maybe the best song <laughs> of all time? And like, and I think what they have in common is that like my physical kinetic reaction to music, which is why I love music so much, Broken Zosian have done that for me, but I think also I, I'm I'm kind of I think I missed a moment with them. I think I missed an organic moment. To, to, I, I keep coming to them retroactively, and even now through you picking right. them on this list, I'm like, fuck yeah, he's right. I really need to go back to that record. So I will go back to that record. But first, back in my records, back in my worst sophomore albums, I feel a bit bad about picking this one as my number one because because I, I don't have any. <laughs> Good job, Dave. You understood the assignment. <laughs> I don't I don't have anything hardcore against it. And even the song I'm going to play, I think, has value. But also, I figured it would make for a good number one because it changed the complexion of this band for me. So, Adam, if you will, here is my number one. Oh, my God. <laughs> lucky, lucky, you're so lucky. You can't. You can't. This is a good I, album. I have. How dare you? <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, l- l- let's take a moment. Some classics Cra- on this. Is there classics? Plural? This is You Could Have It So Much Better by Franz Ferdinand. That is, oh. uh, the song you heard there was the lead single, which of course is called Do You Want To? And I don't know, Craig. I mean, like for me, this is... I like I both really like that song and it's 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 withering irony and music video as well of them crashing 
you know, a kind of an art installation full of hoity-toity rich people, and they're basically dressed like some kind of modern day version of the Droogs. And it's 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 willfully obnoxious in a good way. I think it's you know it's it's football terrorist indie in a good way. But also, at the same time, I think it kind of, you know, consumes itself like a neon star or something. And just the thing about this is that on this album and even with this song, Franz Ferdinand immediately just became a far less interesting proposition to me as a result. Am I wrong? Am I out of touch? No, it's the children who are wrong. I remember at the time the reviews, but also me thinking and saying that like, they deftly swerved the awkward kind of difficult second album thing because they followed up the debut really quickly. I think the songs are like right up to standard. <clears throat> songs like Walk Away, like I just, I think are, are tremendous. I, I kind of know what you mean about the, the weird like magical quality that they had when they arrived just kind of went away a bit. I don't know if it's like the music or it's just like how do you keep that going like what you do is it a like is this album too similar to the debut they were of course going to name the album just Franz Ferdinand as well and I think they were kind of talked out of that by the record label and have the exact same cover and just keep doing that for every record of the career <laughs> which would have been hilarious but um, maybe that was the problem they were just like we need to replicate what we just did and just kind of seize the moment and they were always kind of like the smartest guys in the room. Maybe they just overthought it and lost something ephemeral kind of in the process. I will stick up for this album, though. I think there's some great stuff on it. I don't go back to it a huge amount, though, in fairness. Well, what's interesting is that, like, I, I think it has become, over time, cited in this kind of a list. And yet, when it came out, the critic reception was was very positive. It got, like, four stars in The Guardian, and nine out of ten in NME, and 8.3 in Pitchfork. Yeah. Q Magazine gave it four. And Pitchfork, I think, talking about, like, the lead single or, and the album, they were like, um, they've come back with a big, ridiculous stomper, a song whose hooks get so happily ballroom glam, you'd almost think they stole them from the suite or the Bay City Rollers, the kind of song most bands wouldn't be able to pull off without telegraphing a whole lot of irony and embarrassment. I mean, like I say, that's why I, f- I find myself in this weird kind of conflicted mode, because obviously Razor Light, Razor Light is a terrible album, full of hubris and has aged like fucking milk. But this one, I just there's just something about this one where I just think almost like it's kind of insidious or something. I mean, even that song, which I like, I think kind of nails it. But there's just something askew, and I, I and I don't know what it is. And like I say, like that first album, by comparison, I think actually has has managed to kind of magnify in in importance and in songwriting versus this. I just think that they, I don't want to say that they tried too hard because that's not a good criticism, but I think it's shallow. I think it's just a bit too shallow for me. And like, it's clearly not the worst second album of all time. But it, <laughs> but like I say. But like I say, it's I, your number one on the list of worst second albums because it, because it kind of kills the band for me. Like I don't care about them anymore, and I didn't. I think you can make the argument though that the third was where they really just like they spent so long on it. They kind of went in a different direction, which wasn't quite working, and that was like their difficult album. Maybe they just kind of kicked the can down the road because the follow up was so quick. Do you know what? You you invoked Razorlight again there, and I was just remembering that you had Razorlight higher up the list or lower down the list. And I just can't stand by that whatsoever. This is far severe. <laughs> I feel like this is their this is their room on fire, which gets an unfair kicking. Maybe it's not as good as room on fire. Is, but like, uh, is, I think it, it's that kind of situation, isn't it? Where it's kind of like very close to the debut, compared kind of unfavorably. Got great reviews at the time, but maybe history hasn't been. I know room on fire is kind of in recent years people have come back around to it, but for a long time it was like the Strokes fucked it up. 
Well, look, uh, Craig, I'm nothing if not a provocateur, and that's what I wanted to do with this list, and I've done it to you, and I'm sure there are many listeners right now who are ripping their earphones out and being like, I'll never listen to No Encore ever again, I'll, I'll never hit up patreon.com slash noencore and throw them a fiver, I won't do that, but uh, can I assume that's that Room on, can, can, can I assume, <laughs> well then why don't you save the show, can I assume that Room on Fire is not your number one, seeing as you've already espoused it just now, you're giving it some bonus look. Room on Fire is not my number one, it's, it's um, the debut is too good, it's too similar to the debut, um... I didn't go with, like, Nevermind either. I think Bleach is great. Um, Doolittle as well could have been up there when you mentioned Pixies, but Surfer Rose is brilliant, so it's not, like, that big leap. Um, you've just, like, given our Celtic brothers a kicking at a time we need to stick together and unite. And, <laughs> you know, the Euros, it's coming home. Emotions are raw. Um, in the, the spirit lines. of Irish-English harmony and Irish-English bands. Soon from my bloody Valentine's Loveless. Um, probably just wrap up the episode there. We talk about Loveless a fair bit. Um, listen, the debut album, Isn't Anything, is a very, very fine album. Uh, you made me realise it's colossal. By the same token, when um, the vinyl for both albums, along with MBV, went on sale recently, I did not add um, Isn't Anything to my cart as I frantically moved to secure this album. And... I just think, yeah, there's a huge leap with this. Like, it's just a totally revolutionary album. Uh, hugely influential. Unlike really anything. A game changer in a lot of ways. Like, I think, like, as influential in terms of noise rock, um, dream pop, as the whole shoegaze thing, which they're constantly put into. And this, of course, gave immediate rise to a lot of those kind of bands that can be grand, but a bit pedestrian, whereas this just sparkles completely. And I think... Calling MBV like a shoegaze band is like calling, I don't know, the Beatles a Mersey Beat band. Uh, it's just 48 minutes of something else entirely. It's loveless, Dave. Have you listened to your vinyl yet that you got recently? You hadn't opened it last time I, I have, asked you. Yeah, yeah, I, I have played it and it sounds warm and glorious. It's like <laughs> being in the womb or something. That's what they're going for, I, I wish believe. I hadn't said that now, but yeah. <laughs> Yeah, look, listen, sometimes you don't need us to rattle on and ramble on. Loveless by My Buddy Valentine is like probably the best Irish album of all time. It's flawless and incredible. And I didn't even, I didn't even think what you would pick. And then I was like, oh yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. It would be yeah, it was a, a dereliction of duty. Um, well, I'm glad a winner's that a winner. I'm glad that you've, um, and the winner takes it all, Craig. I'm glad that you've, uh, you've, you've re-rated the ship after my Franz Ferdinand cat among the pigeons situation that I've, that, that I've created there. Um, but one cat who's cooler than the rest of them is our sonic architect, <laughs> Adam Shanahan, who has Indeed. guided us, as always, throughout this episode. He's a beautiful, beautiful boy, and we love him. So it's patreon.com slash noencore. If you'd like to help support the show, we'll be recording a new no oxcore this weekend. We'll be recording a new no popcorn soon, now that we've all seen In the Heights. And uh, what are we doing next week, Craig? Vince Staples, I presume? Oh, that's out. Yeah, it looked a bit sparse, but that sounds great. Yeah. And um, how are you feeling now post-vaccination? Are you good? I feel fine, yeah. a tiring effort for you? I feel okay. Um, I, I, mean, I guess I'm worried about what it could be like tomorrow. Everyone seems to have had different side effects and such, but, you know, get your vaccine, kids. There you go. That's my, that's my civic duty done for the day. Get your uh, vaccine. Shut up a nurse. <laughs> <laughs> 
Why not? This is Living, and this has been No Encore. My name is Dave Hanratty. His name is Craig Fitzpatrick. See you next week. Have a great weekend. Bye. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.